Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Murphy. Hey, X, how are you? Murphy, how you doing, brother? Hey, you know, I want you to know I'm wearing a hat. You know why I'm wearing a hat? Uh, pattern baldness? That That's normally why I'm wearing a hat, yeah. but today I'm wearing a hat because guess who's joining us today? Uh, the Hatmaster. Tell us. Our old buddy, Mark McKinnon, who has done more for the Stetson than anyone since <laughs> Lyndon Johnson. And uh, I thought I, I ought to, as an homage to him, I ought to be wearing a hat today, so I put on this Cubs cap. Uh, it's a less classy, but nonetheless, there you have it. Well, I'm honored. From the hat master to the hack master. Oh, <laughs> oh there you go. Man, you see, that's why we wanted him, because he he immediately jumped on that opportunity there. So I will say this about the hat. It, it is certainly an affect, but it's not a recently acquired affect. There's not a picture of me growing up. I don't have a hat on my head. Yeah, and you said your dad, your dad was a big hat guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My my dad wore a hat exactly like this. His dad wore hats, and his mom wore scarves, and he's like a blend of the two of them. <laughs> I so. remember, I remember back in the day in Austin when we were both thumping around politics. I think you were you were still gnawing a limb off to escape the Democratic Party. This is like nineteen ninety. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're we're way back. I remember you had a hat back then. You were working on like a mayor's race. <laughs> Um, and anyway, so you, yeah, you have always yeah. been yeah. the hat guy. I think your dad, Bob Lanier. Wanted- we, that's where, that's where McKinnon and I met. We worked on that race together, but listen, guys, I'd love to talk about this all day, but there's a pandemic going on. What? The country's locked down. Uh, there's a presidential race going on and we got a president who is, well, I don't know the last night after he did his press conference, uh, he tweeted that he was freezing all uh immigration into the country uh, apparently caught his homeland security people and the folks who would actually have to execute that off guard as he uh, often does uh what about the you guys are from the other side of the aisle do you tell me how this plays tell me what is going on in his head right now if you have the qualifications to do that <laughs> mark you first <laughs> well he's he- He's tripling down on what got him where he is, which is the wall and, and uh, you know, to stoke fears of others coming into our country and changing our way of lives. The, the irony here is that now that we have more you know, virus contagions than anywhere else in the world, uh, I think other countries would want to build a wall to keep us in the United <laughs> States. Yeah. He also said, you know, I mean, it was really interesting the way he formulated it in his tweet because he also said, uh, you know, to protect good American jobs because so many people have lost their jobs and he's creating uh, a sense that somehow if we let these immigrants in that uh, they'll take the jobs that these people uh, need. It really is a classic. I mean, it's an oldie but goodie. He's going to his his uh, go-to, go-to tricks. I think that's exactly it. He's playing the hits because he's in a corner and he's scared. 
And I think in Trump's brain, nothing else is working. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, he, he a couple of things he goes to. He's a grievance guy, and in his head, I think he he does think that the biggest problem is like immigration. You know, in, in his addled mind, the the virus is yet another immigrant, and so it's kind of a double purpose for him. It feeds his own kind of right. IQ ninety five view of all this. And it gets him back to he knows there'll be a big outrage and that, you know, oh, be, the, the elite will be horrified. And it plays into the bigger narrative of this whole thing is a Chinese plot. So it, it's just him going back to his natural hit, uh, but out of insecurity and fear, which is the tell, I think. Yeah, to blame foreigners. Yeah, I like that somebody tweeted that this affects 66 percent of his wives. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, this isn't the only manifestation of his, uh, his recognition, uh, that, uh, Murphy, that, um, that this is not going particularly well for him. He, you know, and it was always true that if we did this right, if we, if we separated ourselves and if we slowed the, the path of this virus and, as they say, flattened that curve, that there would be people who say, you see, nothing happened. It was all overblown where we've lost our jobs for nothing. I mean, and he knew, he sensed that was coming and he jumped on it. And so even as his administration is giving out directives about how states should unwind the stay-at-home orders, uh, he throws in with the protesters who are, uh, you know, showing up in different capitals uh, spurred on by, I guess, three gun nuts in Minnesota who've taken over these Facebook sites or created these fake Facebook sites. Uh, we, we prefer to say Second Amendment patriot in the Republican Party, but your your point is taken. <laughs> and, and didn't Trump uh, do right. do some sound on this? Yeah. The yeah, good let's people? take a listen yeah. to his, to his, uh, to his um, after he tweeted, liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, and uh, liberate Virginia. He was asked about it. Here's what he had to say. I've seen the people. I've seen interviews of the people. These are great people. Look, (laughs) they want to get, they call cabin fever. You've heard the term. They've got cabin fever. They want to get back. They want their life back. Their life was taken away from them. And, you know, they learned a lot during this period. They learned to do things differently than they have in the past. And, you know, they'll do it, hopefully, until the virus has passed. And when the virus passes, I hope we're going to be sitting next to each other in baseball games, football games, basketball games, ice hockey games. I hope we're going to be sitting next to each other. I hope you have golf. To- the Masters is going to have 100,000 people, not 25 people watching at the course. I, I am not. No, I'm not. I, I think these people are... Uh, I've never seen so many American flags. I mean, I, I'm seeing the same thing that you're seeing. I don't They're see it any differently. There too. They're who? Nazi. Well, flags. that I totally would say no way. But I've seen. I didn't see that. I see all. Of course, I'm sure the news plays that up. I've seen American flags all over the place. I have never seen so many American flags at a rally as I have in the Israelis. These people love our country. They want to get back to work. So. I leaving aside the fact that the news media is obviously sticking Nazi and Confederate flags in the hands of these uh, these protesters. <laughs> it is it is amazing. It is amazing that at the same time that, you know, he you know, he talks about cabin fever. What about covid-19 fever? What about the fact this isn't about this isn't about rugged individualism. This is about if you go out you can spread this virus and then we will be right back to where we start. And that's what his people are saying. 
That's what his public health experts are saying. And, uh, and he's going the other way. And the implication is that people who are abiding by the rules and regulations who are trying to shut down the pandemic are somehow not patriotic, that they're not American. And you have, you know, some of those people saying, oh, they're hiding under their beds, you know, uh, when in reality, for Trump's long term future and his reelection, the better course is to end the pandemic. And the way to do that is not to congregate at these capitals and and to apply the, the rules that the health experts have been telling us about. Yeah, I, I think there's a time when you just got to blow the big dumbass horn. Um, from my time out in the woods with the Michigan militia, where I'm an honorary major, I can tell you the campfire discussion was not centered on the work of Watson and Crick, okay? It was more debating cartridge versus cartridge for the long-range rifles. So, you know, Trump just... This is like Trump crazy talk chapter 814, and I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day because there's one of these every few days. So now he's created this mythology where there are these, quote, good people, and I think any anybody he defines in his head as relatively for him is a good person. Now, they, you know, they can, they can collect third right, right stuff on the side, maybe listen to a few speeches, but they're good people. And um, and so he just always wants to take a side. But to your earlier point, David, you know, the hypocrisy of having a government machine saying one thing, I don't think he has any connection to what the government machine is saying. I think he stands up there and is wondering, wouldn't that Fauci ever shut up so I can get a word in edgewise? I really think he's that narcissistic. <laughs> so there's just no connection to reality here, which is why you see the governors filling the vacuum, because somebody has to. Yeah, well, you know, he wanted to be a wartime general. That's what he told us. He's a wartime leader, I should say. And the thing about being a wartime leader, I was just watching this great uh, uh, documentary series on Netflix that came out last year about World War II. Uh, and the thing about being a great war, wartime leader is you got to ask hard things of people. I mean, that's part of it is that people are going to have to, you know, there's sacrifice involved. Uh, and in this case, there's real sacrifice involved. My heart breaks for people who've lost their jobs, uh, not just the people who have been infected, but the people, the, so many people who've lost their jobs, their businesses. By the way, to that point, David, can you cite one of these uh, daily press avails over the last, I mean, since the pandemic, where the president has struck a single note of empathy? No, or Anybody? No, he can't. People who he died, can't. people on the yeah. front lines. Sociopath. He can't. It's incredible. He can't. He's hardwired against it. Well, it's amazing. You know, my daughter sent me a book uh, on the history of sociopaths during the campaign, sure. and it's a fascinating book. And th and there's a test, a uh, twenty question test uh, that has been held up now for years to determine who's a sociopath. And if you score over thirty, they lock you up. And I did a back of the envelope on Trump and I got to 27 with five questions unanswered. <laughs> but, but the, but the key, the, the, the most important factor in that determination is lack of empathy. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the signal feature of a, of a social. Right, right. It's the open gate. And a super narcissist. Listen, the fact is that so many of his worst qualities have come into play here. The lack of empathy, lack of experience or even regard for government and what government's role uh, should be uh, and uh, inability to work with others. Th those things have all come to the fore here. Isn't there a long-term effect here, guys, that just sort of in the macro sense of, you know, what may come out of all this is a a reestablished notion of what government is for and why we need it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I'm, a couple of friends of my wife who are conservative and 
and they they were saying, gee, maybe Bernie Sanders was right about this healthcare thing. I mean, I think people are kind of reevaluating. They will be reevaluating, but the bigger thing is how they see how they judge him. And, I mean, in the short term, I think in the long term, we're in. We're, yeah. There's a whole new reimagining of the social compact and how we move forward, and I think that discussion will happen. But the short-term issue is how they think about him. You know, there's an amazing stat in that Wall Street Journal poll over the weekend uh, about who they trusted for information about the virus. Now, remember, the president's briefing for two hours every night, uh, and only 36% said they trust him. He has a 44% approval rating. 36% of Americans said they trusted the information they were getting from the president of the United States. Fauci was in the 60s. And there's Wall excuse me, Washington Post has new data out. It's clear that this thing is finally catching up to him. That the 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 nightly Trump show, other than in his cul-de-sac of, of narrow support, is starting to grind away. Uh, and that poll was quite telling because you know we know these polls affect Trump's behavior because Trump reacts to things that he sees in the media or on. That knows the effect it well though. No, no, I, that's what I mean. I, I mean, I mean, it pushes them further off the brink, uh, and then you get stuff like immigration bans. I thought the most interesting poll uh, question that I'd never seen before. That seemed really telling and perhaps revealing about what may happen in November is it asked it asked respondents. It said, OK, if you don't like either one of these yeah. guys, who would you be? Yeah, for? overwhelming. And, and Biden, it was like 60. Yeah, no, that tells a lot. Trump won that that same question because a lot of people didn't like him or Hillary. He won. He right. won that going away in 2016. Right. That would be a real, real source of concern. If Absolutely. I were, uh, if uh, I were his folks. Listen, it may be that he got wind of. He he may have gotten wind of that post poll you're talking about, Mike, went, before he hit send on the immigration. That's what I was tweet. just pitching because I think that's exactly what happened. The other number that well, there are a couple numbers that caught me in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, which I like a lot because it's done by two political firms, POS and Garen Hart, on the Republican yeah, D side. So both right, both good sure. firms and from from kind of our world. But if you look at the very unfavorable which is a good measure of how each base is kind of riled up against the other. Biden's sitting at 24, Trump's at 44. So it, it's not like a 50-50 thing. The intensity to go do something about Trump among the people who don't like Trump, which is a bigger group now uh, than the like Trump group, is really strong. And when you push him on that question, all right, you hate everybody who you're for, not Trump. Um, that just shows how locked in the fire Trump numbers are. Now, the the one ray of hope, and I'm curious what you guys think about this in the in the poll for Trump, as the economic pain increases from the COVID recession we're you know in the middle of, and my guess is it'll get worse before it gets better. You know, management of the economy, which used to be Trump's big thing, he still holds an advantage. I think it's seven or eight points on better able to handle yeah. the economy. So yeah. the question is, in the fall. Can Trump use that to frame the debate? And what can Biden do to take it away from him? Because the great thing about having an opponent they hate for most things, it's not too hard to make him hate him for one other thing. So I'm wondering if the Biden camp is going to go on offense, trim that number. It's what I would do. I wanted to get into Biden a little bit later, but since you've raised it, you can absolutely see where Trump is going. You know, um, I have been listening to these uh, press briefings because I feel obligated to. Uh, and uh, But one thing that I've noticed in the last few days is him stressing, you know, this is, we had a great economy before I built the greatest economy in history. 
and it's going to take a strong, experienced, you know, guy to to do that. And I'll do that again, and I'll rebuild it. And the flip side is, you know, he and his campaign are depicting Biden as a as a guy past his prime, sleepy Joe, not up to it physically or 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 mentally. And I think where he's going to go is look, this economy is in shambles, not because of anyone's fault. We had built it up to this this greatest level it's ever been. And now I'm gonna have to re I'm gonna have to rebuild it. And the other guy, he he's not up to it. Right, he can't right. handle it. That's where they're going with this uh, right. that's where they're gonna go with their message. So what does Biden do to preempt it? A couple of things I'd say. Uh, one is that he he takes the you know the oh eight oh nine recession build out model and say we've done it, we did it. And by the way, ours was the best economy if right. you actually check the facts. Right. But more to the point, I I think that the the greater problem for Trump is going to be. I just think that while on the COVID front things could improve, although I think that's a that big bet at this point, I, I think there's you know massive testing problems, and I think we're getting in too early. And you know you see shit happening in Georgia, like people you know opening bowling lanes for Christ's sake. Yeah, well we'll get to that. But I think yeah. that under almost any scenario, the economy is going to be worse in October than it is today. Uh, I think the market's going to be down another you know five thousand points. Uh, and I just think the economic impact and devastation is going to be much worse than any of us thought. And the other thing that's striking me that's problematic for Trump is there's so many things that go counter to his brand about helping out the big companies that, you know, all these stories are coming out now about yeah. about people who took advantage pot of the, belly you know, and Ruth the Chris instead of the little yeah, restaurants. The pot belly yeah. stories and. And then you're going to have the Florida thing. Not that pop bellies are bad. I want to speak up for Murphy and me. (laughs) But I just think that it's going to be problematic because suddenly there's going to be a story emerging about how he, how government and Trump helped out the fat cats. Yeah. And that's very counter brand for him. And that's going to be problematic. Yeah, I totally agree with this. I think the environment is going sideways for him. I also think that the incompetence, you know, messaging, which is going to come out of this as people continue to experience it under him is going to spread over. And if the Biden guys are smart, they'll help this into economic management. That Trump was a guy who kind of won the lottery last time, and he's not up to what this is going to take. Here's another uh, interesting uh, kind of just macro view that's, that's, that uh, doesn't have an historical president that I know about. Maybe you guys who know a lot more about history than I do will c- correct my homework here. But Here's an interesting dynamic. As you know, when you're running for president or lots of offices or most of them, there is a change versus uh, status quo access that goes on, especially when you're running against an incumbent. Right. And so Trump ran as one of the, you know, Hall of Fame challengers with his with his disruption message. Right. right? Got 80 percent of the vote among people who want to change. Right. And Hillary Clinton, given her background, was clearly seen as a status quo candidate. Now we have an interesting situation where four years later, he's the incumbent. And normally as an incumbent, you'd be the status quo, but he's still the disruptor. He's still the right. change candidate. And four or five months ago, maybe that was okay. But given what's happened now, he's he's now the change disruptor, Jeb Bush, chaos president. And you have Joe Biden, who's who's ironically the, the status quo right, guy yeah, right, in style. as the challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think, and, but given the environment, I think a lot of people are going to check off and say, I'm kind of, you know, I'd like to see a little calm and, you know, this guy's been there before and he rebuilt out of the recession. He knows, he knows who the deputy assistant secretary of commerce might right. be. And, you know, as opposed to leaving well, them. Well, we used to have those. Yeah. But uh, right. look, I, I think that uh, that's absolutely right. And Trump, 
only has one play. I mean, he's never going to be the 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 inside guy making things run smoothly. That's not his. It's not within his capacity. It's not within his playbook. And he's going to keep on trying to inflame his base. And his problem has always been that his base is not large enough uh, to win. And this migration of people away from him in suburban areas, I think, is going to be exacerbated by the way uh, he's he's handling uh, this. You know, he one of the things that uh, came up in his press conference, I think it was yesterday, uh, was, I mean, he's haunted by all this foolish things he said about this for six weeks. And a reporter, uh, Yamish Alcindor, who he loves to spar with, uh, raised this point that he was holding rallies in February and March. Let's listen to that bite. Dr. Fauci said that by doing it, President Trump saved tens of thousands of lives. So I did take it very seriously. He held rallies in February and in March, and there are some Americans. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about rallies. I really don't know about rallies. I know one thing. I haven't left the White House in months, except for a brief moment to give a wonderful ship the comfort. You held a rally in March. I I don't know. Did I hold a rally? I'm sorry. I hold a rally. Did I hold a rally? Let me tell you, in January, when I did this, Yet virtually no cases and no deaths. And yet I put it on. So how could I not? Why was Nancy Pelosi, right? Nancy Pelosi is holding a street fair. She wants a street fair in San Francisco in Chinatown to prove, you know what the purpose of it was, to prove that there's no problem. Many other politicians did the same thing and wanted to prove. While I was, no, of course not. No, no, no. I've been... People are amazed at how early I acted, and I did act early. With that being said, it's very hard to say, let's close down the greatest economy in the history of the world. Speaking of acting, was he acting there? Can he really, does he really, <laughs> he believes it. That's the thing. He he believes it. In his head, it's all true. And Nancy, I mean, he constructs alternative realities, and then he believes them, which is why he's always selling them. It's one of his, one of his crazy things. Well, he does, but the difference here, Mike, is that, most of the things he says his base believes, but in the in the recent Wall Street Journal poll and, and, and others, not just Democrats, not just independents, but Republicans by a margin of, I think, 66 percent believe that he didn't act early enough. So mm-hmm. not even the base is believing that. The problem is, uh, you know, he's got this one huge problem. It's called video. I mean, you know, every you know, it's one thing to create an alternative reality. But when people can actually see the actual reality on tape. And be reminded again and again and again of him saying that this was going to miraculously disappear and we wouldn't have more than 15 cases. And, uh, you know, the whole thing was a hoax. It was at one of those rallies yeah. by the way, in February that he called it a hoax. I think it's, you know, I mean, I think he's got limited room to move here. I think this is where you liberal snowflakes miss it on our fine president, which is don't forget the George <laughs> Lakoff stuff. Don't think of an elephant. You know what I'm thinking about right now? And, you know, I'm, I've hated Trump since 92. What, what the hell is Pelosi doing doing a street fair at the beginning? I'm curious about that now. So, you know, this word salad he sprays out, it's not connected to the truth, but it deconstructs into, like, new information that in the world that still has partisan allegiance to really not want to turn over the government to a Pelosi, you get curious. So there, there is some method in his insane madness there where I, he keeps introducing new rabbit holes and crazy. And it's, I know it's mostly bullshit and crazy, 
but it does have a way of getting into the public consciousness and putting his opponents on defensive. I was listening to Cable last night in the car, you know, driving from one bunker to another here in here in L.A., and I, I they uh, Anderson. I think I was listening to CNN uh, uh, briefly, and Anderson Cooper was on, and he opened up with a big piece about Trump calling Pelosi a few names. And now our guest, Nancy Pelosi, what do you think about the names? And Pelosi, to her credit, kind of said, why is that always the first question? You know, because he sets the agenda and you guys follow it. So, you know, some of that some of that stuff works. Yeah. And uh, I think it, uh, you know, when the voters start having a stronger filter, it won't. But so far, uh, there's a there's a trick to it. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, that there I, I, I completely agree with you. I think he, I've said I've always said he has a feral genius for this and for the misdirection play and so on. I'm just saying that the, 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 this is something different because people are experiencing it on the ground. People have watched it unfold on TV. It's really hard to rewrite the script. And yes, he can throw out the Pelosi aside, but Pelosi is not going to be on the ballot, uh, in November. And I think that with his base that may play, it's hard to see him expanding his base with misdirection yeah, I agree plays with that. in this kind of a situation. Yeah, I, I also think the Pelosi boogie woman is he's just gone that well so many times and it didn't work that well in 18. So we'll see. But I, I, I mean, Biden's got that, uh, you know, that two minute ad up now, which I think is to me is pretty effective in terms of showing video, particularly when it shows Biden on February 27th saying put people on the ground in China so we can find out what's going on. Yeah, I think we have a little bit of that uh, of that spot. Let's let's listen to that. He failed to act. So now Trump and his allies are launching negative attacks against Joe Biden to hide the truth. Here are the facts. Joe Biden warned the nation in January that Trump had left us unprepared for a pandemic. Then Biden told Trump he should insist on having American health experts on the ground in China. I would be on the phone with China and making it clear we are going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. But Trump rolled over for the Chinese. He took their word for it. The president tweeted, China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. China, I spoke with President Xi and they're working very, very hard. And I think it's going to all work out fine. Trump praised the Chinese 15 times in January and February as the coronavirus spread across the world. It's a tough situation. I think they're doing a very good job. Are you concerned about its potential impact on the global economy? I think that China will do a very good job. I think the ad is perfect. The, the problem is Biden is about 187 million short, according to the latest media. Yeah, and that was a video ad. It wasn't a. Uh... It wasn't right. Exactly. And so for people to see it, I mean, that'll work virally. And the the problem with viral ads like that is they're they're heavily watched and enjoyed by people whose minds are made up. So if if you hate yeah. Trump, it's a it's a particularly good ad. The question is, how do you push it out into into voters you may be able to persuade or those suburban voters you're trying to keep from going back to Trump, which I agree with David is a key to everything. Well, that's money. And so I, I we talked about this last week. We don't need to dig too far deep into it. But there, there's definitely an emerging finance problem in Biden world. And he's got the messaging. Yeah, he's about 170 he's, or something million behind. Yeah, and they don't need to close all of that. I think Jim Margolis was in that article saying, look, we can run a perfectly good campaign, but you'd you'd really like to cut that in half. And I'm not well, sure. Well, I will say this. The outside groups, uh, American Priorities uh, and some of the other groups, are doing pretty well in fundraising. So they're going to even up mm-hmm. that score. They've announced already a $70 million buy uh, for the fall. They're doing stuff. 
uh, right now. But let, let's talk about Biden for a second, because one of the th- I mentioned earlier, the uh, the sort of strength uh, and e- we were talking about the strength and the economy issue and so on, where Trump is going, uh, you know, whatever, however crazy some of that the uh, press conferences have been, the guy commands an audience of millions every day. And he's not going to let go. I mean, he's, you know, he's turned it into, he, he sees it as a top rated TV show and he's the action star and he's going to keep it. And Biden is there in his basement uh, and seems like a kind of spectral figure. Uh, and the, so I think there's a tactical challenge for Biden here about how they use digital, how they use uh, sort of viral uh, opportunities, as well as their money, uh, to try and create an image of uh, a more active image of who he is. Because these these very, very uh, intermittent interventions on, you know, television news programs don't seem adequate to me. And I think ultimately the image of the president behind that podium, you know, surrounded by his team, you know, talking about, uh, occasionally talking about the virus itself, still connotes a level of energy that is hard to show when you're sitting in the basement. Yeah, he doesn't have a platform. I I have a big question, a strategic one I wanted to ask your guys' opinion on that relates to this question, David. Well, you know, First of all, I mean, Joe Biden is like Trump. He's he's not going to remake himself. He's going to be Joe Biden, and he's he's never going to do the Trump show like Trump does it. And he shouldn't try to. I don't think. And, and I mean, first of all, he should get out of the basement, maybe move to the main floor. Yeah, can't they take him up to the first floor? Here's a question that I have for you. And and, and people, have, there's been some op eds about this, and you know, people usually write it off as kind of punditry gone crazy, and you know, in the, it doesn't really manifest itself in the real world, and never has as as a quirky, crazy idea. But what about? But I think we're in a different time now. And here's the notion: you announce not just your VP pick, maybe early. But you you announce your cabinet positions as well. Yeah. You put out your. I mean, Trump says I alone can do this. Biden says I'm going to have the best team ever. It's going to be a. It's going to be country over party. McCain. I'm going to have some Republicans, and here's what they look like, and have them fan out across the country in August and October and November. I mean, why not? Why not have Beto O'Rourke out there as Secretary of Interior, you know, ginning up the kids, and why not, you know, Julian Castro at, at HUD or whoever, and just have the whole damn cabinet out there? What's the downside of that? Well, one thing I think is is the I like the idea because it it gives Biden a a thing and he can grab the debate and everything. the The problem is the modern media will go out and start cherry picking at various. Cho- oh, wait yeah, a minute, exactly. we didn't know that Beto O'Rourke, you know, X, Y, and Z. So you you know you've got to have real elephant skin not to get into the Daily, New York Times, Washington Post rifle shots at all these people. And so it becomes just a Washington food fight about, you know, who's pornographic, uh, you know, acting in their 20s or whatever, to use a particularly disgusting example. So the point is, if you could do it clean, (laughs) you like it. What I keep pitching, and I'll be very fast because David's heard this 28 times, 
I would do the old Jerry Ford, Joe Garagiola thing. I'd give him a dancing <laughs> oh, partner to do a streaming show because he can't do it alone. Biden he looks like an undertaker or the minister of information talking to the camera. He needs somebody to bring out the best from the conversation. But I think if yeah. you borrow your living yeah. room, I'm looking at here on on uh, Zoom with the fireplace and the, the warmth of it, it could be an anti-Trump thing. In other words, instead of the madness and high wire act of Trump. That's a really good idea. Like Oprah, I don't care, Al Roker, somebody who can, one, get Biden to shut up once in a while. But then, McKinnon then, likes like, the idea because he sees an opportunity to rent out. Rent his, out the, uh, yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah. Biden could even borrow a hat. But the conversation would catch on, I think, virally. <laughs> no, I think that's a really good point because Biden is really good in conversation. You're right. right. And this reminds me of a time I got on the Amtrak train. So of course, went from, you know, from New York to Washington, but it stopped in Delaware and picked up Biden. And he, and we ended up at the same four square table. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm a, you know, I'm, a, I've liked Biden for a long time and, and no, kind of knew him a little bit. So we ex- exchanged pleasantries and what have you, but I was like, I'm going to leave the guy alone. He's he was, you know, he's the vice president. He's on a train. He's, you know, he's got homework to do or wants to take a nap. He didn't stop talking the whole time because there were a couple yeah. of college kids that kept asking him questions, and he loved it. He was on. It was like boom, boom, yeah. boom. You know, listen. The man the likes park. to talk. I mean, <laughs> he does. But but to Mike's point, you need to kind of feed him. Right, and you need an air horn to shut him up once in a while, which would be the other job of that moderator. <laughs> but that would be in a compelling yeah. Biden that would help him, and I think it would work virally, or they could buy time. Buy an hour every week. Yeah, I mean, and there are variations of that where you don't necessarily have to have uh, uh, the same person sitting in conversation with him every week. Right now they're doing this podcast where he talks to people. That's not working at all because he's much better at answering than asking. And it just seems very awkward and stilted. And, uh, you know, but uh, in terms of your point, Mark, uh, and and Tom Friedman in the Times has been pushing this notion of uh, shoving, uh, of announcing the cabinet and so on. I, I do see the appeal of that. It speaks to what I think is really important for Biden, which is to really make you, he has a, a, a unified Democratic Party. He should use all those assets. I mean, they should be very aggressive uh, in flooding the zone with their surrogates, including uh, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders and Warren. But also, you know, he's got a ton of other people just champing at the bid to go out. Uh, I'm wondering where they are, frankly, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg, uh, uh, you know, there are people who could really do him a lot of good out there. And even if you don't name them, there is, you know, in many cases, an implicit understanding that these are the people he's going to be surrounding himself with. I would worry a little bit about Mike's thing. You know, even when you pick a vice presidential candidate, as McCain learned in 2008, you know, you own them and all of their uh, liabilities uh, become part of the campaign. The Trump people would uh, see to it. So now instead of vetting one person, you've got to vet 12 or 15 and and you just don't know and you don't know how they're going to necessarily perform and everything they say you own. So, um, you know, that's the downside of it. I'm not saying it's, you know, he shouldn't uh, do it. I also, by the way, uh, want to remind everybody it's April and, yeah. uh, you know, y- y- whatever you do, you want to, uh, do it in waves and, and you want to game it out in terms of time because you're trying to land this plane in November, uh, not in June. And, uh, so people are restless. Yeah, it's exactly right. You can use the dead time to hopefully emerge. I mean, this, he ought to be a, 
you know, they ought to be thinking through and getting his performance up and everything. So when the spotlight does hit him, he's fantastic. I, I have great worry they're not doing that. But, but to your point, Mark, I think there's a hybrid. Uh, what you could do in, is kind of build an economic recovery team. I mean, when I was doing the Schwarzenegger yeah, campaign yeah. and the recall, there you go. We, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. the economy go. was a big issue. And so luckily, Buffett was for us. So we started doing press conferences where Arnold would nod sagely while Buffett was his chief economic advisor. And instantly, Arnold had a plan, which you know we later did have. So Biden could recruit a few all-stars that aren't going to be in cabinet so they don't get quite the scrutiny. He could travel and see them, and they could stream little meetings, and every week they could put out a a provocative idea to start owning the future. He's never going to own the present virus. Cuomo owns it. I agree with this completely. But jump ahead and own the economy and shave that eight-point advantage Trump has, which is the one ray of hope in this very bad poll for Trump. So it's not there Mm -hmm. anymore when we get to uh, it's even when, when we get to Labor Day and whatever the conventions are and, and build, grab that credibility. Well, meanwhile, turn the surrogates loose to, to beat the shit out of Trump every day. Yeah, you know, yeah. in the I, I agree with this completely. I, I think that I think he, he should do that to signify I'm the guy who's going to be taking this thing over. I'm thinking about what comes next. Here's what it's going to look right, like. Right. I yeah. have a plan and I have the best people. I'm going to recruit the, the best and the, and, 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 the, and the smartest people. I do think the biggest and most important thing, though, is to put Biden in a situation and have his surrogates deployed in such a way as to connote energy command. Uh, because I think if he answers that question, he's going to be in really good shape come November. And uh, I think this business about the economy is not just about that Trump knows how to do the economy, but that people see this as a job that's going to require a lot of energy. And uh, and they want to see uh, some of that from uh they want to see some of that from Biden. Hey, uh, you know, on this issue of the macro economy, though, I will point out, and it's a different set of circumstances, I know, but um, Mitt Romney had a significant advantage over Obama on that question on Election Day in 2012, where Obama had a big edge was uh, fighting for the middle class, fighting for middle class jobs. Uh, and uh, that's a place where I think Biden has an advantage uh, over Trump. And as you guys mentioned earlier, the fact that this money is all going, or not all, but this money is disproportionately going to fat cats and corporations rather than little the little, the little guy uh, only abets that vulnerability of Trump's. Yeah, I've just got to push back real, real quick as a right winger. The corporations are who employ the little guy. If we were doing the Denmark model right now where we give the corporations the money to keep their payroll going, we'd be in better shape. But for for another debate, right? All right. Are the, is the are the corporations keeping their payrolls going because of what they got, Murphy? The fact of the matter is that they didn't get that. If if those loans had gone to the franchisees and they agreed to keep their employees, there's it's it's hard to see exactly where that money's going or that it's actually. Uh, preserving jobs. It'll be the most inspected money uh, st- since the stimulus. Uh, the airlines Not are. if the they, president has his way. Well, he won't, though. We both know that. Anyway, Mark, take take it from here. I think they're trying to manipulate that inspector general. Well, I'm just going to say in some of that polling, I, I was I, I was interested in uh, they kind of uh, message tested the Biden message, which was the soul of America or something, which was you know pretty positive, 60 percent. But then they tested it kind of a war and corruption message for Biden. It was like 85. 
so there's a there's a corruption component that's growing out there and and, and how and when by yeah it's an opportunity because uh, they're knowing trump engage in that yeah yeah last thing i want to ask you guys before we uh, take a few of our uh listener questions is the governors uh the governors i mean trump is has we should point out his ratings on the handling of this has they they peaked you know at around 50 a little above 50 they're now underwater uh the governors are very very popular and their their handling of it generally has been very very uh uh popular he is now picking a fight with the governors over this issue of testing that everybody agrees is what's necessary in order to responsibly reopen the government, massive testing, tracing, treatment. Uh, And every single governor or virtually every governor, Republican and Democrat, have said, we don't have enough tests to do that uh, now. And the president every night insists that that's not true. Last night he said uh, that uh, uh, Governor Hogan uh, of Maryland and 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 J.B. Pritzker of Illinois just don't know where the tests are. Listen to this bite from Hogan, a Republican, in response to that. And I've repeatedly made this um, argument to the leaders in Washington on behalf of the rest of the governors in America. And I can tell you, I talk to governors on both sides of the aisle nearly every single day. The administration, I, I think, is trying to ramp up testing uh, try, they are doing some things with respect to private labs, but to try to uh, push this uh, off to say that the governors have plenty of testing and they should just get to work on testing, somehow we aren't doing our job is just absolutely false. Uh, nothing like an adult Republican for a change. I wish we had more. It's it's an interesting fight that the president has chosen. Uh, it's all linked to his desire to be the guy who says we should open up the economy this is an impediment. He wants to pretend that the impediment doesn't exist, but he has far less credibility than the people he's fighting with. And he thinks yeah. through sheer will that his version of events can prevail. Well, listen to this also from from Governor Hogan and talk about a classic baiting of the trap. Listen to this. I'm grateful to President Trump for sending us the list of federal labs and generously offering Maryland use of them for COVID-19 testing accessing these federal labs will be critical for utilizing the 500,000 tests we've just acquired from South Korea. So he's saying, we've got the tests. If we just access the federal labs, we're we're good to go. Exactly. That's the hitch. Yeah. He's accessing the federal labs. Yeah. Not to mention he slides in the fact that they on their own got 500,000, 500,000 tests from South South Korea. Korea. You, you made the point, one of you guys earlier, and it just keeps coming back to me. Trump is best running against something. And when you're, you're the incumbent, you know, he's running against himself in some ways, Again, you know, and so it's just it's such a such a he's such a fish out of water in a reelect compared to being an insurgent challenger. And it's just killing him. Exactly right. It's just so hard for him to not be able to be the outsider. Well, he may be the outsider uh, if things uh, continue uh, this way. Here's the final thing. Should the networks be covering these pressers. I mean, I watch them. I mean, he basically he he basically takes about ten minutes to talk about what a great job he's doing, and then he you know there's there's the obligatory few minutes from people who actually know something, and then he opens it up to questions which generally are far ranging. They don't just deal with the 
So he's talking about he gets his trade message in, you know, and his immigration message in, and he basically hits all his campaign themes. And it is basically, I mean, it is sort of uh, open mic night for Donald Trump every night. He he said the other day he sort of let his guard down and he said, he basically said, you know, I'm having to do this because I can't do rallies. So what what is huh. what is the responsible thing for networks to do? Well, Mark, you go first, and then I'll give my prescription on this. I've been thinking about okay. it. Okay. Well, I on this question, I'm I'm uh, maybe uh, have a different point of view than than a lot of people. Maybe you guys too. I'm for broadcasting him. I, I you know, he's president of the United States. Nobody has an obligation to cover him, but I don't think they should be penalized or prohibited or shamed for covering these president of the United States. I think he does himself more harm than good, except for with his base. Uh, I think he just exposes a lot of the, 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 the you know, the, the ongoing problems with the system and that they're not prepared to deal with it. And it just, it just, the, it just shows the emperor without his clothes. And the more I see him without his clothes, the more people realize what's going on. I mean, he's, he loves the cable coverage. He loves the show. Uh, and and yes, it's it's so it's so what it's a campaign commercial. I mean, to me, we can dissect that and analyze it. And uh, and, and by the way, it's not really the networks. To, he's he's hurting himself actually by doing it. Actually, when the networks are doing their news, so it's not the networks that are covering him live. It's right, cable. right. But he's getting a pretty big audience. It's not. Look, I don't disagree with you. I mean, my general inclination is in a time of crisis, people want to hear from the president. And uh, but he he is sort of abusing the. The, the 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 forum and no one is saying don't cover it they're just saying don't cover it live and and take those a- elements of it that actually relate to the crisis or that actually are news and don't let it let them turn it into sort of performance art every every night that that is basically that serves no purpose except his own Murphy, break the tie. I'm a towering figure, as you all know, in journalism, so I think I've got this figured out. It, 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 the normal rule is cover <laughs> the president, but we, we've had a long and successful democracy without covering the president live. That's just an outcome of technology that we can do this, and the networks have made right. a little bit of a P.T. Barnum circus out of it. So why not do this? Cover them live, live on your streaming platforms for people who want it live, but cover them like a pool. Cover them like the evening news. Say he's given a press conference an hour from now, we have a highlight clip. And then that way you can take whatever was newsworthy and have a little 12-minute cut-down thing an hour later, a bit of a time delay. Uh, and if people want it live, there are a million ways they can access it that way. So that way he gets covered, but he gets covered as news, not a runaway open mic night where he's leveraging the fact that the virus means you can't do campaign rallies to turn a White House you know, announcement into a campaign rally. The whole system we have is based on the presumption of some honorable behavior in the President of the United States. And his hack has been to totally throw that out the window and not to operate with any of those old unwritten rules of the job. So, okay, we can change the rules of journalism for a little while and delay them for an hour and a half and cut it down to anything newsworthy. I think that is a reasonable solution that does not choke off the president's ability to get covered. And if he said something really newsworthy, bang, it'll be on the air in an hour. You know, that's a good hybrid. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I'm that's what I was arguing not to. 
not but not as eloquently. Well, of course not. not. Uh, Come on, you know, or or, or as 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 much at length. Now, David, re- real, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> come on, I I had to bring my jaws to life to get in today. Um, fry the mic away. I'm like Ron last week. We we told him bring a crowbar to get a word in. Well, speaking of words, it's now time for words from a sponsor because we got bills to pay. Uh, so we'll be right back after we hear from a few of our outstanding Hex on Tap sponsors. Support for this podcast comes from Dropbox Business. Think about the people you work with. You're all supremely different, but that's what makes a team so valuable. Different skills, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking and working. So why force everyone to work the same? Dropbox designed a new kind of workspace, a space where whatever works best for you works best for your team, where every file and app connect. Tasks not only assign work, but also help organize it where you can create new decks, spreadsheets, and even launch video calls without ever needing to leave your workspace. That's Dropbox Business, a space for teamwork your way. Try Dropbox for your team at dropbox.com slash teams at work. Okay, we're back. The bills are paid. The lights are on. Now, here's the mailbag. If you have, uh, I know, we, we do the old, we're spinning the hot wax here. Uh, we're doing the old radio jingles. Ken, and we're right on the cutting edge. <laughs> those are a fallback from the old Radio Free GOP days where. No, I was just going to say, I, Mike had those great uh, music. You know, without from, uh, slowing down our clock here, because we try to keep this thing relatively brisk, those are all classic jingle tunes that were re-sung by the great Jams Pams guys in Dallas who owned Big big Boss Radio jingles for 30 years. They're wonderful, and I do appreciate they're letting us steal their music here. Classic stuff. Okay, uh, first question to the esteemed David Axelrod from Don uh, Jr. Now let's see what this could be. I have a question (laughs) about Elizabeth Warren as a potential VP choice for Biden. I'm not seeing her on the media shortlist anymore, and I am wondering if it has something to do with her being a Democratic senator in a state with a Republican governor, Charlie Baker. I would think that flipping the Senate is almost as important to do to the Democratic Party is beating Trump. If Warren joins the ticket and they win, wouldn't Charlie Baker put a Republican in the seat? What do you think about Elizabeth as VP and all the rest of that, David? Yeah, presumably Charlie Baker would. It may not be the kind of Republican who Donald Trump would want or Mitch McConnell would want, but it would be a Republican. Uh, And I would think that uh, Chuck Schumer would not be very happy about that prospect because uh, while I think the needle has turned in favor of the Democrats in, in terms of taking uh, control of the uh, Senate in 2020, it's going to be marginal. And I'm not sure you want to give up a seat. Elizabeth Warren obviously has prodigious strengths. She also is a more polarizing figure than some of the others on the list. But the, just the sheer power of her uh uh, of her intellect and and the the following that she has would put her on this list. I think Schumer might take her off. Mark, what do you think? I I just completely concur with what David said. I I just think that there's a you know there's a strong cast on the short list, and she's among them. But that's a big demerit that uh, that it's the governor who is Republican will get to choose a Republican senator, which he will. And as David said, it'll probably be a fairly moderate massachusetts type republican but still a republican and 
and Schumer's going to blow a gasket, and I think that'll put a big stick in the spokes. Yeah, I agree totally. I guess uh, Baker could say that he would appoint a Democrat because the state elected Democrats, but I'm not sure he wants to get into that can of worms. So here's a question from Steve that both you guys uh, should answer as fallen away Republicans. My first question is for Mike. As a conservative who calls out Donald Trump for not being an actual conservative, what are the main conservative principles you've seen him abandon, undermine, that you think best exemplifies that? My second question is for David. As a Democrat, do you agree with Mike's assessment always, by the way? Or is there any sect of conservatism that Donald Trump does qualify for? Well, that is an outstanding question, Steve. Uh, I'll try to be brief because this could be a three-hour answer. Don't get me started. I will say first, put aside the rule of law, authoritarian, corrupt thug, um, pop his ass <laughs> part because that applies to either either party. It's a disqualifier. Trump is not a conservative because he doesn't care about what conservatives care about. He doesn't care about fiscal policy. Spends like a drunken sailor. Has no comprehension of it. In foreign policy, he's against free trade. We're we're small L political science liberals. We like free trade. He doesn't understand the Atlantic Alliance that kept the peace since World War II and brought down the Soviet Union. He uses cheap rhetoric. He is Juan Perón. He ought to have a, a, a ridiculous uniform with clanking medals because with Trump, it's cheap populism, which is applying and pandering and cheering on the worst impulses of the mob. We conservatives, in the great words of William F. Buckley, like to stand athwart history yelling stop. And Trump is the opposite. He's cheap applause and no ideological compass at all. I just echo that. The easier question and more simpler, shorter answer is which which uh, which conservative uh, principles has he not abandoned? Yeah, exactly. Uh, look, I in the main obviously agree with you guys in, on the Atlantic Alliance uh, point, Murphy. It was interesting yesterday to hear him talk about how uh, you know he's going to make a deal with the Koreans and they're going to have to pay for our defenses, our our forces there because. Uh, you know, we've been giving them this gift all these years. And um, and it struck me, does this guy not see any purpose to having uh, American forces in the world uh, and having that capacity uh, in a dangerous world? Uh, and uh, I mean, he sees everything as transactional, like NATO, we're doing Europe a favor. Uh, you know, we're in Korea, we're doing the Koreans a favor. You know, notwithstanding that China's sitting over there wanting to dominate that region, that North Korea's sitting right there uh, threatening uh, us. But uh, but on two two areas that I think you guys have to acknowledge that he represents what some conservatives would say is conservative orthodoxy, maybe three. One is uh, uh, deregulation. I think his deregulation has been dangerous. Yep. But uh but he has been a radical deregulator. I think we're going to pay a price for that uh and uh in a whole lot of ways down the line. The second is tax cuts. He uh he passed a very big tax cut that was a signature of his uh of his last 3 years here. Republicans would claim that as their own. And the the third would be judges. I mean, he he's placing judges on the bench who, uh, uh, you know, Federalist Society, uh, you know, has basically have basically dictated uh, to him. Uh, You know, again, I I, we can have a big debate about what it means to legislate from the bench. Um, I think these conservative judges, uh, so-called conservative judges do that 
quite a bit. But I think conservatives would cling to those three things and say, you see, he is one of ours. Yeah, it's what they have, the dereg stuff in particular. I mean, the, he has no idea what a conservative, strict constitutionalist judge is. He just waits for a list from Mitch McConnell. But I get your point. On, on dereg and on tax cutting, though you can argue fiscally um, incompetent tax cutting, if, if you look backwards, very few conservatives traditionally have argued for tax cuts in a time of um, – uh, economic success, uh, because generally or argued for tax cuts without offsets. Right, exactly. They're generally to spur a dead economy, not to. Yeah, they argue for that when Democrats are president. <laughs> well, you guys always use the trick where you cut taxes by four cents and declare a massive middle class tax cut. Everybody plays the tax cut political game, and that's why that's a part of you know conservatism that appeals to Trump because it's popular. What he won't do is the unpopular conservative stuff. He's a fair weather conservative at very very best. All right. Well, now uh, we got one for. All of us, but I want to start with McKinnon because he has a cinematic flair. <laughs> and that quest, this question is from Brian and is, what are your favorite TV shows or movies about politics? Well, uh, Murphy and I probably share a lot in this department, which is, and, and you as well, David, I'm sure. Because we're in the profession, we have a pretty high bar for watching political shows because most of the time it just they don't really meet the smell test. But I have three documentaries that I not only I love, but were the inspiration for this documentary show we do on Showtime called The Circus. And they are in order. Great show, by the way. Thank Tremendous. you, sir. Uh, they are in order. Journeys with George, uh, produced uh, by, ironically, uh, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra Pelosi, in 2000, which was about that campaign with George Bush. And for the first time, turned the lens away from the candidate, back on the press, and, and first made me start thinking about, well, there's this whole orbit of people that are interesting, including the people covering the thing that are interesting. There was another one called So Goes the Nation in 2004, which nobody saw, uh, but was a really good example of uh, they dropped cameras into Ohio for the last two months of the election. And Ohio was critical, as we know. And it focused on people other than the candidates, like the, the press secretary for the northern half of the state or the field general for you know, the Dems in the in the western part of the state. And it turned out that there were these fascinating characters besides the main characters that showed you can have interesting characters besides the candidate. And finally, Mitt, the documentary, yeah, yeah. which I thought was spectacular as an example of, you know, a guy who really could have been a great president but kind of got bottled up and didn't show the real humanity and, and, uh, and, and you know, all those components of, right. of Mitt Romney that I know, Mike, you know well. Uh, that weren't really revealed in the campaign. So those three are uh, a big, big uh, top of my list. Murphy? Yeah, I, I agree with all of them. I agree on Mitt. You know, it's funny. that was Most of that footage was from the first presidential campaign. There was a big debate on whether or not to release it publicly. I argued for it because I thought it would have helped him. And uh, Craig Whitney, who made that, is a tremendous documentarian. He did a new thing about a town in Texas uh, with this big cheerleading culture that's fascinating, too. He's a great documentarian. I will well, just, Was he doing that? Yeah, I believe he's involved in that. He might have directed it. So I will just plug one movie, and I want our loyal audience to go to Amazon and buy the DVD. You will thank me. We might even use a little sound from this on the way out. It's one of the greatest movies about politics ever made and and brace yourselves it's in black and white the great mcginty a preston sturgis picture written and directed 1940 <laughs> brian dunleavy it's a story
story of a hobo who's good at voting multiple times, maybe set in Chicago, and how he climbs the political uh, ladder with his sidekick, friend, and antagonist, the great character actor Akeem Tamaroff as the boss. Uh, you will laugh. You will smile. It, it's my view, the my favorite political movie ever made. There are other great ones, The Candidate, you know, uh, Best Man. You can go through the whole classic age of them. But check out The Great McGinty. Hey, that's a great one, Michael. It reminds me of another one that's so parallel to the Trump era, which is a face in the crowd. Totally. Yeah, Andy Griffith great... is a villain. It's Andy tremendous. Griffith, yeah. man. That is a Lonesome Road. That man. is a great, great uh, film. So I've got one. Being an urban politics guy, uh, uh, I recommend The Last Hurrah with Spencer oh, Tracy yeah. about the last campaign of a of an old machine uh, boss and who who loses to a vapid television age. Uh, candidate and it's really poignant and fun and uh, I would uh, I would recommend that as well. Do we have time here, uh, Murph, for a last call? Because I got one. Yeah, me too. Real quick, let's do it. Last call. All right, we we can't leave here without talking about this governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp. He was late to begin social distancing because he said he just learned that coronavirus could be communicated asymptomatically and you might not know if people have it. Like everybody in the world knew this, but somehow he did not. And then he implemented social distancing. I think when he got the high sign from Trump that it was okay to do. Now Trump is signaling that it's time to unravel the thing. And this is the governor, even though they still have They've had 19,000 cases. There are lots of death. They still have a problem there. Uh, he's suggesting that they open up nail salons, hairdressers, and bowling alleys uh, uh, in, the, in the coming days. What the hell is that? <laughs> I think he got confused. That he thought coronavirus was caused by social dancing. Which made more sense. So he was he spun into a whirlpool of confusion now, and then he uh, he's trying to trying to think his way out of it. Uh, Sent him some Tylenol. So my uh, last call is yet another million dollar idea for the Democrats, and this is hard for me. I don't like to advance the cause of socialism, but we have a national crisis in the White House. So here's something else you guys should think about doing. Trump puts on a intolerable two hour train wreck show every day on TV. Get call up the three arts. Call call up Principato Young. Call up Joe Hogson. Get some Hollywood talent involved and do a mystery science three thousand mocking session of every press conference and stream it. So you can watch comics heckle and mock Trump during his press conference. Not not the Fauci stuff, not the important <laughs> pandemic stuff. Just cut out the Trump madness when he's talking about other topics and do a, a funny mashup. Mystery Science Theater 3000 type heckle and put it up every day digitally with a rotating cast of comics. It would be a huge viral hit and it would drive Trump completely crazy, even more crazy than he is, which would be the joy of it. I'm surprised somebody hadn't done that yet. That'd be great. You got anything? I'll drink to that. You you don't don't (laughs) have to have anything on your mind here, McKinnon, but if you've got something you want to get off your uh, chest, now's the time. Uh, My chest is empty. All right. (laughs) But your mind is not. And that's why we're so happy. We're so happy to have you, Mark McKinnon, the great Mark McKinnon. Good to be with you. Mark, thanks a lot, and we love to watch you on the circus. When are you coming back? We'll be back in August for the conventions. Outstanding. Whatever the hell they may be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they might be on Zoom. Whatever it is, it's going to be interesting. All right, brothers. Thanks a lot. Good to be with you. See you next week, Murphy. Take care, Axe. Good to see you, Mark. 